What was the last disaster movie that you saw? Disaster movies are pretty popular, more popular in my younger years than they are now. Um, I can think of uh, uh, asteroids heading for Earth like Deep Impact or big waves like the Poseidon Adventure or earthquakes in, in San Andreas or, or volcanoes in Dante's Peak or tornadoes in Twister or there's always the towering inferno, right? Yeah. Or maybe you're more into the apocalyptic and catastrophic like Independence Day, you know, where aliens are coming to take over the earth and and the United States has to come to the rescue. Uh, more recently, things like uh, 24 or uh, Designated Survivor have been more popular, kind of the, the threat of horrible and terrible things happening. But unfortunately, catastrophic and disastrous events are not just movies, they're not just fiction, they're real. Uh, in my own lifetime, in your lifetime, probably the one I remember most is 9-11. I don't think very many of us will forget where we were when we either heard about 9-11 or saw 9-11, and then when we saw the actual towers, the Twin Towers collapse in New York City, there was this sense of loss, of tragedy, of, of uncertainty that we all felt as Americans. With that introduction, I invite you to turn to Jer Jeremiah chapter 37 in your Bible today. The text is about a real disaster. It was far more devastating to Israel than 9-11 was to the United States. It is about the fall of Jerusalem. How important was Jerusalem to Israel? It was the home of the temple of Solomon, the temple of God, the center of Israel's religious life. It was the capital city of the promised land. It is where the kings and political power resides. For Israel, Jerusalem was not only the religious and political headquarters, it was also the economic and social headquarters of the country. It was all of these things rolled into one. So our biblical text today is not just about a city, but also about the nation Israel, about their faithless king, about a faithful prophet, and also an unlikely servant who delivers and is delivered. And it's about us too. For Jeremiah in chapter 1 verse 4 is not just a prophet to Israel. God calls him to be a prophet to the nations, to the peoples. For a little background, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 37 if you're not already there. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim. And here's the key point. Neither he, that is King Zedekiah, nor his servants, nor the people of the land, listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. They didn't listen. This is the current situation in Israel in 589 B.C. Things were no better under the previous king. In chapter 36, we saw him take the scroll of Jeremiah's prophecy and peel it off bit by bit and throw it into the fire. These people are in serious rebellion against the Lord. In fact, Israel had been in spiritual decline for nearly its entire existence. 
Idolatry and disobedience to the Lord was rampant in Israel right after the exodus from Egypt. Remember the golden calf. During the time of the judges, we're told every man did that which was right in his own eyes. All this idolatry and sin was against the law of God. Let's be reminded about the words of Moses to Israel before entering the promised land from Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 19. Moses said, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Many blessings are available to Israel. Verse 17, But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. The law of Moses, blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. Well, how did Israel do? Let's listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet about a hundred years before Jeremiah. Isaiah 1, verses 2 to 4. Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, Isaiah says. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me, referring to the children of Israel. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. You see, the animals know where they belong, but Israel just wanders around aimlessly, Isaiah says. Verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Strong, strong words. But by the time we get to Jeremiah chapters 38 and 39, which is what our passage is really about, 850 years has gone by. God has been extremely patient with His people. But over the course of that time, and now specifically as we get close to 586, 589 B.C., Israel has continued to choose to trust other gods and other nations and their own prideful and arrogant solutions rather than trust in the one true God of Israel. Now, just like those of the past... King Zedekiah and his countrymen are not listening to or trusting the Lord once again. Yet King Zedekiah does have a grudging respect or kind of a a curiosity about this prophet Jeremiah. For look at verse 3 of chapter 37. He says, please pray for us to the Lord. He tells Jeremiah to pray for them. He must think Jeremiah does have a ability to reach out to God that he does not have. You see, Zedekiah knows God's word. Zedekiah knows God's prophet. 
but he doesn't really trust the Lord. He only trusts him when things get difficult because as you come to chapter 38, the Babylonians, the Babylonians are at the doorstep of Jerusalem. They have taken almost the whole land of Judah and Israel and except for a couple of other cities and isolated Jerusalem. So while King Zedekiah is asking Jeremiah to pray for victory over the Babylonians, Jeremiah tells Zedekiah that Jerusalem and Israel's time is up, that the die has been cast, that judgment is going to come upon Israel for its sin. Look at chapter 37, verse 9. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourself, saying the Chaldeans, that's just another name for the Babylonians, the Chaldeans will surely go away from us. For they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. See, Jeremiah says, even if they're all wounded flat on their back in their tents, they can't get up, your city is going to be judged and destroyed by fire. The Lord's judgment on Israel for failing to keep the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, is going to be carried out at the hands of the Babylonians. Jeremiah had told Israel and King Hezekiah this before. Jeremiah 25, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all, from all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Israel will go into exile in Babylon 70 years. That's what Babylon did when they took over a a country or a city. They hauled most of the people away. Took them out of their land. Well, with that long introduction, I've got a four-part outline for you this morning. Part one, Jeremiah is sentenced to death. That's chapter 38, verses 1 to 14. Point two, Jeremiah demands action. Chapter 38, verses 15 to 28. Point three, Jerusalem is destroyed. Chapter 39, verses 1 to 10. And point number four, snatched from the fire. Chapter 39, verses 11 to 18. Point one, Jeremiah is sentenced to death as a traitor. But he is delivered. Look at Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 1. Now Shephathiah, the son of Methan... Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shalmiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. This is what Jeremiah is saying. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, 
This city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Jeremiah here is seen as the Benedict Arnold of Israel. But even at his own peril, Jeremiah will not keep silent. And he proclaims God's message to the people of Jerusalem. The message is, get out while you can. Leave. Now, you can understand why the leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel would say, this guy's a traitor. He's not calling on people to stand and defend the city. He's calling on people to get out. God's Word is calling on people to leave. Four of Zedekiah's officials hear this message. They want to silence him, saying he's demoralizing our soldiers and proclaims that our people should leave. Their conclusion? Put him to death. Now, they don't want to actively put him to death. He's, he's a prophet, after all. He's got a good reputation. Instead, they, they devise a plan to throw him into a cistern. Well, what's a cistern? A cistern is a reservoir to hold water in the ground. Usually, it would have a hole at the top about three feet around, and then it would open up and be much bigger, and it would be so far down, you'd have to have some method to get people in and out. And so they drop him in this cistern. There's no water in it, but it's full of mud. Now, imagine yourself at the bottom of a cistern, a little hole of light at the top. It's cold in there, and you're muddy. And you are in the mud, and you can't get out. Essentially, they're putting Jeremiah in this damp, cold, muddy bottom cistern. It's a death sentence for him. It's a death sentence. They didn't have the guts to actively kill him, they just want him to die a slow, painful death at the bottom of the cistern. Now I ask you, who's the traitors here? Is Jeremiah the real traitor? Or is it these leaders, these officials, and King Zedekiah who are willing to go against God's word and against God's prophet and put him to death? They are traitors. They are traitors against Israel, against God, and against Jeremiah. Verse 7 of chapter 38. When Ebeg melech the Ethiopian, a eunuch, who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in this city. Now notice 
who God raises up here to deliver Jeremiah? Is it a Jew? No. It's a Gentile. It's a foreigner. It's an Ethiopian. He's a servant in the king's house. Think of the guts it took for Ebed-Melech to go forward and say, oh, by the way, your top officials, they put this guy to death and he shouldn't be going to death. I mean, Ebed-Melech's putting his own life in danger at this point. Let's go on, verse 10. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah, the prophet, out from the cistern before he dies. See, everybody knows the objective here is to kill him. Verse 11. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Interesting, isn't it? The Scripture makes a big deal about Ebed-Melech going and getting rags and clothes and stuff rather than lifting Jeremiah just up by a rope. No, he's going to make it more comfortable for him. It's going to make it more secure for him. So Ebed-Melech, then verse 15, they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So Jeremiah is out of the cistern now, but he's still held prisoner. He's now in the court of the guard, which is an area of basically a prison right next to the king's palace. Much better conditions than the bottom of that cistern. Interesting that King Zedekiah, who just before in the narrative gave passive permission to imprison Jeremiah, now actively sends a detail of men to help Ebed-Melech to rescue Jeremiah. Why did he need 30 men? Well, there was opposition, you can be sure, to getting Jeremiah out of that cistern. So Zedekiah, who seems to have a little bit of a soft spot in his heart, let's don't give him too much credit, provides for Ebed-Melech and for Jeremiah. Point number two, Jeremiah Jeremiah demands action from a fearful king. Verse 14, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Jeremiah knows this guy. Verse 16. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hands of these men who seek seek your life. Notice. Zedekiah goes to the third entrance to the temple. That's likely a king's private entrance to the temple. It's, this is a secret meeting. Zedekiah doesn't want anybody to know he's meeting with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's response to Zedekiah's plea to tell him the truth is interesting. Basically, it's if I tell you the truth, you're going to kill me. And even if I do tell you the truth, you're not going to listen to me. Where's the benefit for Jeremiah in this? but he's a faithful prophet. He tells him the truth. 
Jeremiah knew Zedekiah was a man who was variable as the wind. The king had trouble making up his mind about Jeremiah. He sent him to this dungeon and then put his under house arrest in chapter 37. So too, the king has trouble making up his mind about alliances. Zedekiah first makes an alliance with Babylon. Then he makes an alliance with Egypt. Then he makes another alliance with Babylon. That eventually does him in. But he's like a ping pong ball bouncing back and forth. He's like, he's like I was when I was little watching football games on TV. I'd always root for the team that's ahead. Zedekiah is always joining up with the team that's ahead. And God's word had told him, God's word had told all the kings of Israel, don't make foreign alliances with anybody. Because you don't need to trust them for your security. You are to trust me, the Lord God, for your security. And me alone. Well, for over 100 years before this, Isaiah warned the kings of Israel about the same thing. Don't make such foreign alliances. And Jeremiah already knows that even though Zedekiah knows God's word, even though Zedekiah hears God's word, he doesn't follow God's word. That's a problem for us, too. Oftentimes we hear God's word, but we really don't want to follow God's word. We kind of want to do our own thing. Zedekiah wants to do his own thing. That's why everything has to be such a secret. Zedekiah doesn't even want his top officials to know he's meeting with Jeremiah because they all think he's a traitor. But Jeremiah does the prophet's job once again, tells Zedekiah what God says. Verse 17, Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, This says... Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire. And you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, that is, the Babylonians. Then this city shall be given into the hands of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans. You see, some have already taken Jeremiah's advice and left. They've left Jerusalem. Zedekiah is afraid he will be handed over to them, and they will deal cruelly with him. But Jeremiah said in verse 20, this is the key passage in chapter 38, the key verse. Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. Now, Jeremiah leaves no doubt in Zedekiah's mind what he should do here. Obey. Surrender. Save your life and all the lives of all the rest of those in Jerusalem. Verse 21. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah, his harem, basically, were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, Your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, 
And you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. In other words, keep it a secret and I won't kill you. Verse 25. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you and say to them, Tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan, that's the cistern, to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him. And he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him from the conversation, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. So I have a question for you. As you read through this passage, be reminded that God's direction, God's word, His way, is always the best way to go. The consequences of sin, of rejecting God's word, are much worse than the consequence of repentance, than the embarrassment of of changing your mind. But Zedekiah is resistant. So who and what is Zedekiah concerned with? Who is he afraid of? Well, just in this passage, first of all, he's afraid of the Babylonians. And he's afraid of his own top officials and advisors. Then he's afraid of those who have already taken Jeremiah's advice and headed out of the city of the Babylonians. People he views as traitors. He's afraid of all these people. But who is Zedekiah not afraid of? God, thank you, that's good. God, he's not afraid of God. He has no fear of God. The words of Jesus to his disciples from Matthew 10, 28 and 32 seem pretty appropriate here. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Proverbs 1 verse 7 is appropriate here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, Zedekiah is faced with a choice. He can either choose the way of salvation, of trust in the Lord, and follow His Word, which leads to life, or he can choose the way of folly, born of the fear of men, which leads to death. Notice that even in the face of imminent judgment, the Lord was willing to give Zedekiah a way out. Lose Jerusalem and Israel to Babylon, but preserve life. His own life, the life of His people the lives of the nation. Verse 9, but Zedekiah, I'm sorry, but Zedekiah has more concern, he is more concerned with the political situation than about his spiritual condition. He's more concerned with the things of this world than his own heart. He was more worried about what people would think rather than doing what was right. He is a man like King Herod who preferred to murder John the Baptist, as we are told in Matthew 14, rather than be embarrassed in front of his dinner guests, even though Herod enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. Point number three. Jerusalem is destroyed. 
Here are the tragic consequences of Israel's sin and of Zedekiah's decision. Chapter 39, verses 1 to 10. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. The siege of Jerusalem began in January 588 B.C. and lasted 18 months until it ended with the destruction of the city in July 587 B.C. Basically, the Babylonians waited them out, starved them out. This is a pretty tame account of what happened. But Jeremiah makes it short and sweet. But he elaborated on those horrible conditions within Jerusalem toward the end of the siege in Lamentations 4. We don't have time this morning. Go to Lamentations 4. Read verses 4 through 11. Horrible, horrible conditions existed within Jerusalem before the Babylonians breached the wall. They ran out of food right before the Babylonians took over the city of Jerusalem. Verse 3, Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sarezer of Samgar, Nebu Sarsekam, the Rab Saris, Nergal Sarezer, the Rabmag, with all the rest of the officers of the kings of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between two walls. And they went toward the Arabah. They went towards the Jordan River to the east. Verse 5, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath. That's up north of Israel in Syria. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah. Notice he did that after he made him watch and kill all of his sons. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. This is a tragic and catastrophic event in world history, even more so, even more so in the history of Israel. This was the last time a Jewish king sat on the throne in Jerusalem. Hasn't happened yet to this day. Won't happen again until the son of David sits on the throne of David. Jesus Christ does. It was 2,500 years until the middle of the last century, to 1948, until there was a return to any real Jewish rule in Jerusalem. These verses are the climax of the first 40 chapters of Jeremiah's book. They are also the low point 
of Jeremiah's life. He loves Israel. He loves his people. On this day of judgment, every promise God ever made about the fall of Jerusalem came true. God said disaster would come from the north, and it did. God said a strange foreign nation would attack, and it did. God said Jerusalem would be surrounded and besieged, and it was. God said there would be famine in the land, and there was. God said the whole land would be laid waste, and it was. God said death would come to the city, and it did. God said foreign kings would sit on thrones in the city, and they did. God promised that Jerusalem would be burned and reduced to ashes, and it was. God said the people would be taken into exile, and they were lined up in chains and deported. And God even promised in Ezekiel 12 that King Zedekiah would be brought to Babylon, but never see it. And Zedekiah was blinded before he arrived. The point? God keeps his promises. God meant what he said. God delivered on every disaster he promised on Jerusalem and Israel because they did not love the Lord above all others. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They did not trust God. They rebelled against him and did not obey him. Many of Jeremiah's fellow Jews doubted this day would ever come. They were, after all, the physical descendants of Abraham. They lived in the land God had promised them. They had a descendant of King David on the throne. Their false prophets promised them peace, peace. They did not believe the wrath of God was coming for sin. Despite the law that had been given through Moses to Israel... 850 years before, they did not believe in the holiness and justice of God. The same is true in our world today. Many don't believe in personal sin, let alone a holy and just God who requires a penalty for sin to be paid or that a final judgment is coming. The Apostle Peter told us this would happen in 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing this, first of all, Peter says, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But this is self-deceived. It's just as self-deceived as those who thought Jerusalem would never fall. For Jesus promised to return in judgment in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory, Jesus said, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will He gather all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. This statement of Jesus begs the next question. What will happen to me on the day of judgment? 
what will happen to you on the day of judgment. Jesus promised just a few verses later in Matthew 25 that the unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The burning of Jerusalem gives us a glimpse or a picture of the final judgment. Some were saved, some were lost, some were redeemed, some were damned. Jeremiah 39 stands as a stark warning against every naive hope of escaping the day of judgment for sin. The sad thing is, in Jeremiah 38, Zedekiah was given the opportunity to write a happier ending. Right until the end, God gave him the opportunity to repent of his sin, the opportunity to listen to God's prophet, to save himself and his people from destruction. But he chose a far worse than just a fate far worse than death and discovered the judgment against him was a living hell on earth, a preview of the hell to come. And although the fall of Jerusalem was a day of judgment for some, it was a day of deliverance for others. Look again at verse 10 of chapter 39. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. The poor were made rich. The slaves received their freedom. But the Lord wasn't done. Now he will deliver two more from the fires of Jerusalem. Point number four, a faithful remnant is snatched from the fires of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 39, 11 to 18. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rathsaris, Nergal Sarezer, the Ragmag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gadaliah, the son of Ahakim, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. How did Nebuchadnezzar know about Jeremiah? How did he send specific orders to protect him and to save him? Well, it could have been Daniel the prophet, who had gone to Babylon, been taken to Babylon almost 20 years before. Could have been Ezekiel, who was taken to Babylon eight years before, nine years before. Or it could have been those who had left the city who went out and told the Babylonians about Jeremiah and why they had run. Verse 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up on the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebermelech, the Ethiopian. Oh, we're back to this Ethiopian again. He's kind of bookending the story for us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hands of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war." because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. This was a day of salvation for God's servants in Jerusalem. 
As the city burned, Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, were both delivered from death and snatched from the fire. Jeremiah, it turns out, had friends in high places, Nebuchadnezzar. Notice the contrast between Zedekiah and Jeremiah. It illustrates in a physical way the saying of Christ in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. King Zedekiah did everything he could to save his life, but lost it. Jeremiah, Jeremiah abandoned his own life for God and saved it. Lastly, do you notice the one person that was saved from destruction? God gave Abed-Melech a five-fold guarantee of deliverance. Look at verse 17 again. God says, I will deliver you. You shall not be given into the hands of those opposed to you. I will surely save you. You shall not fall. You shall have your life. And don't miss why God is doing all this for Ebed-Melech. It is because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Remember, it was Ebed-Melech, this obscure Ethiopian eunuch, this Gentile who saved Jeremiah before. It was Ebed-Melech who pulled him out of the cistern. Notice the basis for Ebed-Melech's salvation. It's very important. He was not saved because God owed him a favor. He was not saved because he saved Jeremiah from the cistern. I mean, if ever a person could be saved by the good works he did, it was Ebed-Melech. In fact, God did not say one word about saving him because he hated injustice or because he had a love for people or for any courageous act he did. God said he saved him simply because you have put your trust in me. So when Ebed-Melech, the slave's life was in danger... God saved him by faith. It's the same salvation by grace that saved another Ethiopian eunuch that Philip baptized in Acts chapter 8. These two Ethiopian eunuchs were both saved by grace through faith, that not of themselves, it was the gift of God, not of their works. Again, the Lord is keeping his promises, not just promises to judge sin, but also promised us to save by faith those who trust in him. The offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is offered to you today. Through a better covenant than Israel had in the old covenant, in the Mosaic covenant. The better covenant was necessary. And it was spoken of by Jeremiah just eight chapters before in chapter 31. It is the new covenant inaugurated by the Savior of Israel, by Jesus Christ. Jeremiah knew that better days lie ahead for Israel. Listen to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, they broke my covenant, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This covenant will involve not just an external change of behavior, but an internal change of heart. There is hope. Jeremiah sees hope in the new covenant, the new covenant inaugurated by Christ. As I conclude this morning, let's be reminded of the words of a contemporary of Jeremiah, the words of the prophet Ezekiel, and his invitation that is short and to the point in Ezekiel 18.23. Ezekiel says that the Lord says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This is the Lord's command for us this morning. Turn to the Lord and live. How will we respond? With the no faith of Zedekiah or the faith of Ebed-Melech? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, keep us humble before you. For we are sinners just like Israel before us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None does good. Yet we take comfort in knowing that you are the one who created and formed us. That we need not be afraid of your judgment for our sins because you have redeemed us in Christ Jesus and called us by your name. For Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sins and imputed his righteousness to us so we might stand before you in glory. Lord, you have promised to be with us in all the troubles of this life, to rescue us from the scorching fire and from the flame of judgment. For that we praise you as the Lord our God, as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.